Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Famine drove us from our homeland. We started a new life. Then came tragedy and loss. Loss of a husband. Loss of sons. Leaving only bitterness. What do you do when all you feel is pain and loss? What do you do when tragedy takes away everything you love? While in my despair, I found hope. Through friendship and love, I found that I could be redeemed. All right, Liquid Church, welcome. We are so excited that you are here. If you are watching for any of our campuses throughout the state of New Jersey, I want to say welcome to those of you watching online as well. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited because we are in week two of our series, Redeemed, the story of Ruth. Ruth is this like tiny little book, only four chapters long. It has a huge impact even today for those of us that are followers of Christ. Now, before we jump in, uh, I just want to let you know that next week, Pastor Tim will be back from vacation, and will be taking us through a new series that I would actually like to have him describe in his own words. Let's watch this video. Hey, Liquid Church, Pastor Tim here, just wrapping up family vacation down the Jersey Shore. I'm headed up north. Can't wait to be with you next Sunday for a special series. Um, I want to talk to you just as a pastor for a minute. My heart has been wrecked over the events of this last month um, from the... Uh, police shootings, um, our nation is just seems more divided than ever. We're divided racially, we are divided economically, we're divided politically, it just seems like we're the divided states of America. And so I'm doing something we don't typically do at Liquid, and that is we had a series scheduled um, for the coming month, but I'm scrapping that, putting that aside, I really feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to look biblically at what can unite our nation. And so we're going to begin a new series. I'm going to preach it live next week. It's called The Divided States of America. How can we have unity and revival when our nation seems to be coming apart at the seams? And I hope you'll join us for that. But also more than that, would you be praying? Just be praying for a spirit of revival and unity to begin taking root in our church because the church really is God's plan. When the culture is coming apart, when our nation's coming apart, God's A plan is the church. That's us. If my people, who are called by my name, that's Christians, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. Our nation needs healing more now than ever. So I hope that you will pray with me this week. I can't wait to be with you next Sunday to preach live and kick off our new series, The Divided States of America. So I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about this series. Uh, the events of this month have really grieved my own heart and just feeling all sorts of emotions. So I'm excited to be, to be a part of this. See, okay, God, what are you calling us to do as a church? How do we stand in the gap and be the people, the redeemed people that you've called us to be? And uh, that starts next week. So I want to encourage you to come, bring a friend. It is going to be a phenomenal series. I can't wait.
This week, we're going to be looking at the concept of redeemed. Uh, last week, we looked at redeemed friendships. We talked about two widows, a woman named Ruth and a woman named Naomi. Naomi is the older mother-in-law. Ruth is the younger daughter-in-law, probably somewhere in her mid-20s, and stays by her mother-in-law's side in her moment of need because, you know, they were soul sisters. They were in it together. This week, we look at redeemed romance. It's, we're kind of looking at what I call the R and B of love. R is Ruth. B is Boaz. We're going to talk about him in a moment and what that means, how they come together. Now, I want to say something right off the front. Now, usually this series, any series we do, it's, it is for everybody. Uh, this message is for everyone, but there's going to be points where I'm going to specifically be talking to some of you that are either single or are single again. And I know that for many of you, you, you are in a state, maybe you're frustrated, you're kind of wondering, you know, God, did you forget about me? Uh, it seems like everyone else around me is moving on, they're getting married, they're having kids, but it seems like I'm still in the same place, God. Uh, what gives? Or maybe you're in a place where you find yourself single again. You didn't expect to be here, whether it was through divorce or uh, someone dying. And, and now you're kind of wondering, God, what's the next step? Well, today we're going to look at four aspects of redeemed romance. You can follow along in your notes. But these four aspects are going to give us a, a bigger, uh, hopefully a bigger perspective on what God is doing, what he's calling us to do as we engage in this whole th idea of redeemed romance versus modern romance that we kind of see portrayed in the world and in culture. So we're going to kind of look at those two things, redeemed romance, modern romance, and kind of uh, compare and contrast them. In fact, this week I read a book by, uh, called Modern Romance by a guy named Aziz Ansari. How many of you heard of Aziz Ansari? Maybe you've seen Parks and Recreation or Master of None. Now, before you say anything, I need to call something out real quick. Now, I know some of you are thinking, <laughs> when you see Aziz, are they brothers? Is, is, are they related? Now, it's true, Aziz and I, were both Indian. We're actually both from the same part of India, but we do not look alike. He is not my brother. Maybe a brother from another mother, but just for a moment, okay, this is Aziz, this is Nithin, okay? Nithin, Aziz, I can't make that face. Nithin, Aziz, right? Completely different people. My wife says I'm better looking than he is anyway, so I'm going to go with that. Now, here's what was interesting about this book. You know, he's a comedian. He wrote this book actually with a sociologist, and they were interviewing cultural anthropologists, biologists, getting all these academics and experts to kind of weigh in on this book. They had access to all the data on websites like OkCupid and Match.com, and really what he's trying to do is put together a digital snapshot of dating today in our world, in the digital dating age. And, you know, he found all these interesting themes, and one of the things I thought was the most interesting was that now, more than any time in the history of the world, there are more options for singles than ever before. You, you could fill out a profile and you meet someone on the other side of the world. You can go on Tinder and meet someone uh, down the street. You can play Pokemon Go and run into someone w without even meaning to. And, and that's what's so incredible about this. But what it's also done, it's also made singles choosier than ever. Because think about it, you can go through someone's profile and you're like, oh, they're a Red Sox fan. This isn't going to work for me. You basically toss them aside before you even get a chance to meet someone and get to that part of the conversation. And, and this is really kind of what's so interesting is now more than ever, the quest for the soulmate is at the forefront. Because if you can find that right person with the right combination of qualities and temperaments, you're going to find your soulmate, your perfect person that's going to fulfill all of your needs. Aziz actually puts it this way. He says this about, your, about the soulmate. I want you, your soulmate, to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. Give me belonging. Give me identity. Give me continuity. But give me transcendence and mystery and awe, all wrapped up in one. Give me comfort. Give me edge. Give me novelty. Give me familiarity. Give me predictability. Give me surprise. I remember reading this. I actually 
pause right then and there, and he said this out loud, oh my gosh, the quest for the soulmate is actually the quest for perfection. We are looking for a man to complete us or a woman to fulfill all of our gaps and all of our needs. But the reality is no man or woman can fill all of your needs. Only God can. See, the quest for the soulmate is actually the hidden quest for a God who loves us and who has created us for himself. And unless we come into the romance world and the relationship world with that understanding that only God can fulfill all of our needs, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to keep hitting a wall. That's why when we understand it's God who meets all of our needs, then we can come with the proper expectations when we're looking for a redeemed romance. And so as we kind of jump into these four aspects, I want to just say publicly, I want to thank uh, Ed Young Jr. A lot of this uh, material kind of comes from one of his messages, really kind of spoke to me. I pray that it speaks to you as well. But really, we want to look at the story of Ruth and see what are the aspects of a redeemed romance that we see in that story that we can kind of take and borrow and internalize for our own lives. And a great place to start is actually to look at Ruth's starting point. Where did Ruth start out in this whole thing? She started out in a place called Moab. Now, Moab in the ancient world is kind of like the Atlantic City. It's kind of like the party palace. It's where anything goes. And so Moab can be mesmerizing. You can just be kind of caught up there, and there's all these crazy and exciting things, over-the-top things that are happening all the time. But one of the things about Moab is that they were very hostile to the ways of God. They were very hostile to God's people. They would attack them and harass them at any and all opportunities that they could. And so when Ruth and Naomi, they find themselves widowed, and Ruth has the opportunity. Remember, she's in her, she's in her mid-20s. She's young. She can stay in Moab and remarry. But she chooses to go with her older mother-in-law to take care of her in Israel, where things are going to be harder. Do you remember this? It says this in, in chapter, I think it was chapter 1, verse 16. She said this, Your people will be what? My people. And your God? My God. So Ruth is essentially declaring to Naomi, Naomi, I don't care how easy it is in Moab. I am coming with you. I need to be with you. I'm leaving behind my customs and my God because I want to follow you and your God and your ways. And at first, Naomi's kind of pushing back on her because she's saying, this is wrong. But Ruth has decided in her mind, and this is the first aspect, to make the move for Moab. To make the move for Moab. Naomi knows this is going to be difficult because Ruth's entire social networks and all of her contacts are in Moab. She even says to her, Ruth, stay in Moab. You don't want to go anywhere else. Stay in Moab. Your family is there. Your friends are there. You'll be able to get married and have a family and things will be great for you. But what was Ruth? She says, no way. I am done with Moab because I have found and tasted the living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. I want to go with you, Naomi. I'm not just leaving all my people. I am leaving the gods of the old world for the true God, the God of Israel. I want to do relationships and I want to do romance God's way, not my own way. And so for many of us, when we are trying to dive in to a, a redeemed romance rather than a modern romance, we need to ask the question, have we made the move for Moab? Are we leaving behind the old and, and living the new way, the way God has called us to live? And here's a great picture of what Moab looks like. I remember years ago, I was working at a restaurant, and I was working at this restaurant, and I remember driving into work, it was around 8 o'clock in the morning, and I looked over in the car next, you know, I was parking, and the car next to me was one of my coworkers' car, and there was this girl in his passenger seat. And I was like, this is kind of odd. So, you know, I get out of my car, and I go, and I say, you know, we see him, I say hi to him. I was like, hey, I just noticed there's some girl in your car. Like, what's the story with that? He's like, oh, dude, so, so the night before, I, I just went to this party, and, and I got wasted. I don't remember what happened, but I woke up the next day with this naked girl in my bed, and I was like, uh, what's going on here? And then it turned out that I needed to take her to, to, to the train station, but I said, well, I have to go to work. So I told her I would take her to the train station after my shift. Now, you got to understand, this was 8 o'clock in the morning. His shift didn't end until 5. So, so this girl was stuck in his car for the entire shift. 
You want to know what Moab looks like? That's what Moab looks like. Moab is you party the night before, you get drunk, you wake up with some random person, now you got to deal with the awkwardness of what do you do with all this stuff? And, and if we're looking for a redeemed romance, we need to make the move for Moab. And I know many of you are thinking, listen, I am done with that stuff. I am done with dating the world's way, with just randomly hooking up. I, I want a real romance. I want a romance God's way. And if that's where you're at, that's great. You're at a place where you can make that move for Moab. And a big part of that is making the decision that you are going to date by God's design in a redeemed way, which means you're going to be joined together and date and eventually hopefully marry someone who is a Christ follower as your foundation. That is kind of like the lowest common denominator. Are they a follower of Jesus? The, the Apostle Paul gives us his ancient wisdom in one of the letters to the, to the Corinthians where he says this, do not be, say this with me, yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Essentially, what Paul is saying this is, I want you to imagine a yoke, and get this picture of a yoke. It's kind of like a cross beam that's on the shoulders of two oxen. It's it's meant to kind of uh, either pull either a till or a wagon, and, and really the idea is that they pull together and they move forward. But what happens if you have one ox and they go here, and the other ox goes there? Where do you go? You go nowhere because they're pulling in two different directions. And so when you're dating or in a relationship with someone who, who doesn't have that foundation uh, as a Christ follower, you make your decisions maybe by looking through the perspective of Christ and Scripture. They're going to use a different kind of worldview, and it can oftentimes cause clashes and cause division. And, and here's the worst part of it. The stronger of the two of you usually will dominate. And your relationship then is, is basically conflict and domination that kind of continually clashes against one another. And maybe right now things are great, you know, you're getting along with, maybe you appreciate their, their other spiritual perspective or other religious perspective and it's neat and it's cool and it's exciting. But if this relationship progresses down the road, there will be conflict. I remember years ago, I was doing some premarital counseling and he had grown up in the church, she had grown up a Buddhist. And when you do premarital counseling, you ask questions like, how do you handle your finances? How do you handle your family and stuff like that? And then we ask about kids. How do you want to raise your kids? And without missing a beat, he said, oh, I know how I want to raise my kids. I want to take my kids to church. I want to get my kids dedicated, go to Sunday school, youth group, get them baptized. You know, I want them to know the stories of Christianity and things like that. And she just looks at him as if he has two heads. She's like, are you kidding me? I don't want my kids going to church. I don't want them to have that kind of religion. I want them to have, you know, you know my, their own kind of freewheeling kind of spirituality, kind of do their own thing and figure things out for themselves. And all of a sudden, this thing that barely came up when they were dating, that was like this little blip that maybe like they were thought, oh, that's kind of interesting about them, all of a sudden became this deeply divisive uh, item where they just clashed and argued and fought with one another. It just blew up without them expecting it, and they couldn't find common ground because they didn't have that common foundation in Jesus. And if you're a Christ follower in this room, I just want to encourage you to, to when you're looking for someone to date or to, to get married, Try and find someone with that relationship with Jesus first and foremost. And in many ways, this is going to really kind of cut your list of potentials, maybe by 50%, because you're making the move for Moab. In Moab, things are easier, right? You, have, you can basically choose whoever you want and, do, with, and have, do whatever you want there. But when you choose to do things Christ's way, you're limiting a lot of your potential partners. But by doing so, God is going to honor you because you are making a sacrifice up front, but he's going to honor what you're going to do because you're choosing him over the ways of the world. Now, I know the other kind of idea that we have is, okay, now that I'm in church, maybe, you know, I'll find someone who's single here, and they'll be the right person. That's not necessarily the true either, because some of us in this room, we have made the move for Moab. We are done doing things the world's way. We want to do things God's way, but some of us, we're not there yet. We haven't made the move yet, and so when we say that we're Christians and we're following Christ, rather than just going by what people say, 
we need to actually look at the contents of their lives. How are they living their lives? This brings us to the second aspect. If the first aspect is to make the move from Moab, we need a change of environment because it will give us a change of perspective. We also need to observe the ethic. Observe the ethic because charm and beauty can be deceitful and it's fleeting, but character counts and falls through the entire course of our lives. And you look at the character of Ruth that we see in this passage, and it's pretty incredible. Once Ruth makes the move from Moab to Israel, she's kind of asking herself the question, how do we take care of ourselves? How do we survive in this new land and this new life? And so she immediately starts to find work. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 2. It says this, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So what we see is interesting is Ruth takes initiative and she's proactive. Rather than just kind of waiting for Naomi to come up with some ideas or maybe just sitting around waiting for some sort of divine lightning rod to fall, she starts to get to work. She starts to do this work of gleaning. And by the way, gleaning is really this kind of um, idea where uh, if you owned a field, you were allowed to clear the entire field except the corners you had to leave alone. That was going to be for the poor, for those that were, were disfortunate, were having a hard time. They could come and they could kind of take the wheat and, and take it. And so this idea of gleaning is that they kind of they'd go around, they'd pick up the leftover wheat, and they would take it, and, and then they'd be able to survive on the leftovers. And so that's what Ruth is doing. And this is not a glamorous job. This is not like a sexy job. No one wakes up and goes, man, I want to be a gleaner when I grow up, right? But this is survival. So Ruth is getting there, and she's in the hot sun, and she's sweaty, and she's covered with wheat, and as she's, she's doing this work, and she's working her, her, her best. Why? Because she wants to serve her mother-in-law. She knows that she wants to serve someone who can't serve themselves. And we see the character of Ruth kind of come to the surface, and it's, it's incredible to see how she's willing to put her own comfort aside for Naomi. But then, as she's doing this task, this kind of menial task to survive, the man comes, Boaz. Boaz is a strong, godly dude. He's rich. He's kind of looking around in his fields. He's probably kind of looking around in his fields, making sure things are, are happening the way he wants them to. And so he's kind of look, talking to his foreman, <coughs> trying to get an update. And as he looks around, he sees, he sees this girl. And, and he's all of a sudden, he's like, who is that? And the foreman says this. The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the fields and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz is like, who is that woman? And the foreman's like, oh, Boaz, where you been? That's Ruth. That's Naomi's daughter-in-law. She came here to help uh, Naomi basically survive. And let me tell you, she is, she is like in beast mode. She has been working from, from the morning up until like, you know, she's just going. She has like maybe some Red Bull and she's going, going, going some more. She, just, she can't stop gleaning. It's, it's incredible. And she's motivated by this love for, for her mother-in-law. And, and you know, what's so incredible about this to me is I'm sure that Boaz, you know, had a lot of fine ladies around him, right? He's rich. But yet there was something that set Ruth apart from all of them. It was her character. Because think about this. Ruth is in the hot sun. She's covered in sweat. She's got wheat all over her. Her hair is not, like, nice. But he sees how beautiful she is. But what really brings him and captures his attention fully is her character, is the type of person she is beneath the charm. And in, in very, many ways, it's very similar to kind of how, how I met my wife many years ago. Um, my wife, you know, I'll be honest, I did not notice her character at first. I just noticed that she was beautiful she had beautiful eyes, beautiful skin. She's a Red Sox fan, everybody, so just, just calm down. I, I look beyond that. So, uh, you know, and so, you know, I, I noticed her, and I was like, man, she is amazing. And we had met working for this organization called the Boston Project. 
The Boston Project is this inner city uh, ministry that basically works, uh, uh, invites church groups to come from all over the country, and what they do is they learn about racial reconciliation, injustice, how to serve, um, you know, the poor and the press and kind of meet these different people. And so we were doing that together, and, and, I, and I was one of the directors of one of the housing sites where these, like, groups would come and stay, and every week we kind of decide what staff would kind of come and help us, and for some reason, Jackie always ended up on my site. I don't know how it happened, but I worked, I worked my angles, right? So, so I had this opportunity to really observe uh, Jackie and, and her ethic. And so one of the things I noticed was she was a hard worker. We would have these long days. Like we would start like 5 or 6 in the morning, sometimes go till 12 or 1 o'clock uh, the next morning. And, and she would always be working hard. She would never complain. She would never stop. She would always be a cheerleader. And I was like, you know, that's incredible. Like she's beautiful, but she's got this incredible character as well. And, and not only that, you know, we would have like these, these teenagers come from all over the country and and, you know, some teenagers, not all of them, but they kind of, you know, be standoffish, you know? They're, they're on this trip, and, and they were kind of like, I don't want to be here. And, and, and Jackie had this way of connecting with these, hearted, these hard-hearted kids, and they'd start opening up to her. And I was like, oh, wow. So she's a hard worker. She loves people. And she caught my attention. She, she caught my heart, and she still does to this day. And, and, and I looked at that and go, you know, this is exactly what probably was happening to Boaz. Boaz saw that Ruth was beautiful, but it wasn't just her beauty that captured him, it was her character, the fact that she wanted to serve her mother-in-law, the fact that she was working hard and, and, and didn't want to stop because she wanted to care for someone other than herself. So if you're in a place where you're wondering, okay, what are the qualities I need to look for in a partner? Are they compassionate? Do they seek to serve others or to be served? Because as they kind of have those traits and those qualities that they, they kind of show for other people, they'll definitely have those qualities for you. And maybe you're wondering, you know, where do I find these people? How can I even observe their ethic? Where can I find them? And let me just encourage you, and maybe this is obviously a topic for a longer sermon, but the question you need to ask yourself first is, God, what passion have you put in my heart? Like, how have you wired me? Like, what am I passionate about? Am I passionate about volunteering at the relief bus to work with the homeless? Or, or to serve in a soup kitchen? or to volunteer at an outreach, or, or to volunteer somewhere in church. Because what happens is, is when you put yourself out and you go where God has called you to go, you find people that are like-minded, have the similar values that you do, and in a lot of ways, it kind of helps you find the right person. Because here's the thing, passion and attraction can fade away. It kind of comes and goes, it's like ebbs in and ebbs out. But you know what lasts? Character. And when you're working with someone, serving with someone, you get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you can still say, you know what? I love that person where they're at. In fact, that's how my friends Greg and Sarah Crippen met. They got married this past May, and uh, they had a heart for Jesus, and they wanted to serve Jesus with all their heart and soul, and they were both going to Liquid, and so uh, they decided to serve at the Guest Connections area, or like the Love Connection area, depending on your perspective. <laughs> and so they're serving together, and they meet one another, and they're getting to know each other, and, and eventually it, the, the end game is they ended up getting married this past May. It's a great story. And you know, it's funny, I talked to many of you, and many of you have met your partner while serving together at Liquid. Because when you serve together, you don't just see, you know, like when you date, let's be honest, you kind of put up a facade and, and you kind of want to be on your best behavior. But when you're serving together and you're experiencing frustration, or you start to see someone as they are, fully and wholly and completely. And that's what's so great because it kind of gets, it starts to demystify the person. You see, them, oh, they're a real human being. Redeemed romance. That's what it means, is we can see beyond just the, the charm, but actually get to the character. So the first aspect we looked at is to make the move for Moab. Change your environment, it'll mean a change of perspective. Then, observe the ethic. Character trumps charm. Charm 
eventually fades away, and you can see through it. But character is the stuff that lasts for a long, long time. This brings us to the third aspect, which is to look for loyalty. Look for loyalty. Now, as Boaz, he's like looking at Ruth from a distance. He's, he's attracted to her, and he, he hears all these things about her. Eventually, he has a conversation with her, and he says, you know, I'm Boaz, and he says this in verse 11. He says this, I have been told, Ruth, all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with the people who you did not know before. So the word had spread about Ruth. People were talking about her. She had left everything that was comfortable and known to her to come to this scary new place to take care of her mother-in-law. Her reputation and her character had gone before her. She was a woman of loyalty. She didn't just cut and run when things got hard with Naomi. She wasn't a fair-weather friend. She stuck together when things were even more difficult. And Boaz noted that, and Boaz appreciated that about her. When you're looking at someone, whether you're dating them or, or maybe someone that you're thinking about dating, have you asked the question, what's their track record look like for loyalty? Like, do they, they simply play a relational hopscotch going from one partner to another partner to another partner? How do they treat their friends? When they date someone, do they basically cut out all their friends? Or, and abandon them? Or are they loyal? They're loyal to their friends and their family. Are, are they committed to the person that they're with? Because, you see, what happens is when you start dating someone, and many of you, you know this, right? The love haze sets in. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like an Instagram filter where everything is awesome and this person is perfect and all that stuff. When the love haze sets in, things like loyalty and character kind of go out the window. Why? Because the love haze has captured us, right? But the thing is, loyalty sticks with us when the haze fades away. Character stays when the haze is gone. And so that's why it's so important that in the midst of all that, we're looking, are they loyal? Will they stick it with us when things get hard, when things get difficult? In fact, that's the kind of relationship that really marks John and Alicia Nash's relationship. John was an um, award-winning professor of mathematics at Princeton. Early in his career, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he would have these, these images of people, and he didn't know what was real and what wasn't real. In fact, it led him to do quite some, quite some really odd, erratic, and violent things. And in fact, he would actually attack his wife, Alicia, causing all sorts of strain and, and fear in their relationship. In fact, if you know anything about their story, it was from the movie A Beautiful Mind, starring Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. We're gonna, in a moment, we're going to see a scene in which Russell Crowe has just, uh, John Nash has just had an, an outburst. He attacks his wife. Things are getting dangerous. And he tells her she needs to leave. And what we see next is a beautiful picture of what loyalty looks like. Let's watch this together. You shouldn't be here. I'm not safe anymore. Maybe you should let Dr. Rosen drive you to your mother.
is real. Maybe the part that knows the waking from the dream. Maybe it isn't here. Maybe it's here. I need to believe that something extraordinary is possible. See, more than ever, it was Alicia's loyalty that kept John alive, that kept him wanting to live. Now, their, their relationship wasn't this picture-perfect love story. In fact, in 1963, she had to divorce him because he had gotten so violent and was so erratic. But here's what's interesting. Even though they were divorced, she had never left him. She stayed with him. She advocated for him. She, she was loyal to him even till the end. In fact, later on in their life, they got remarried because of her loyalty. That's the power of loyalty in a relationship. When things get difficult, when things get bad, no one's going to cut and run, but they're going to stay with us no matter what. And Ruth exhibited that. She stayed with her mother-in-law at her darkest hour when things could have been much better for her. Ruth had character. That's really what it comes down to. And she exhibited it in every area of her life, whether it was in relationships, whether it was in the way she worked, whether it was the people that she was with. They could all tell that Ruth was a woman who had substance. And Boaz picked up on it. He saw that, and it captured him it captured his attention, and it held his attention. Which brings us to an interesting concept. Before we jump into the, four aspect, the fourth aspect, there's an interesting thing about Boaz that we need to understand as we move forward in the story. See, Boaz, just like Ruth, had a heart for, for those that were oppressed, those that were poor, those that were struggling. And we see a picture of his heart when we look at verse 14, where it says this. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she got down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to, to pick up and don't rebuke her. So even though the law had left provisions for the poor and the oppressed, Boaz went above and beyond it. Boaz said, hey guys, you know, in the, in the sheaves that we already have, why don't you go ahead and start grabbing some and just kind of throw them on the ground so that, so that Ruth can pick them up and, and just, just give her a break. Let her, let her gather as much as possible. Another thing when you're looking for someone, how do they treat those that are beneath them, the, the poor and the oppressed? Do, are they generous with them, with their time, with their energy, or do they just kind of write them off? See, Boaz didn't write Ruth off. In fact, Boaz loved on them. Because you remember, for widows in the ancient world, they had nothing good to look forward to. But Boaz's generosity, I'm sure, had a huge impact on Ruth and definitely on Naomi. Because Ruth comes home with, with, this huge, with this huge basket of all this grain, and, I, and I'm sure Naomi is like, oh my gosh, Ruth, where did you get all this? Where did this come from? And Ruth said, Naomi, I met the most wonderful man today. His, he was kind, and he was generous, and he was sweet. His name was Boaz. Have you, have you heard of him? And Naomi, at this moment, probably smiles, probably for the first time in a long time, because she feels like there's going to be a break in the pain. The luck's changing. The wind is changing. And then this is where she says to Ruth, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. 
See, if you catch anything about the book of Ruth, this really is the hinge to help us understand redeemed romance, this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Boaz was this kinsman redeemer. In fact, let's say this together. Kinsman redeemer. Now, really to understand what in the world is a kinsman redeemer, let's break this word down a little bit. If we, if we cover up everything else, we see the word kin. Kin simply means family. So this is really someone who is there to, to, to kind of take care and to redeem the family. This is something that someone would volunteer for. They'd say, I volunteer for this. Because what would happen is something that would happen to Ruth and Naomi where someone in the family would die. So they were widowed. Ruth and Naomi were widowed. So the kinsman redeemer would usually be someone that was next line that would say, I'll take care of the family. I'll take care of the widow. I'll marry the widow. And I'll give her dead husband an heir with my life. I volunteer myself for that. And that's essentially what Boaz, uh, his, that was one of his things. That he said he would do that for anyone in his family. That was his role. He was the kinsman redeemer. And what's so interesting about that is in, in a time where widows were just expected nothing, and I'm sure Ruth and Naomi were just expecting just darkness, this finally gave them hope. Because Naomi could say to Ruth, Ruth, you don't understand. He can redeem us. He can buy us back dignity. He can buy us back life. He can buy us back a place in society. You see, for many of us in this room, we need to understand that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He can buy us back life. He can buy us back destiny and hope. But also the kinsman redeemer's role was not just to buy back and redeem, but it was also to protect. And this is really the fourth aspect that we see. If we need to make the move from Moab, change our environment to change our perspective, if we need to observe the ethic because character trumps charm and look for loyalty, not play relational hopscotch, the fourth aspect that we're going to look at is this, to protect the purity. Protect the purity. See, once Naomi finds out that, that Boaz is a redeemer, and she kind of knows, mother-in-laws know, you know, he, he kind of likes you. Here's the advice she gives Ruth. She said, Ruth, I want you to put on that sexy black dress of yours. I want you to put on the heels, put on the lipstick, get your hair all did up, and I want you to head over to the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor is kind of like the ancient world locker room where guys would all gather and they would thresh grain, which meant they would kind of get the good stuff from the grain and throw out the garbage from it. They would do that all, all day and all night as long as the harvest lasted. But it wasn't really a great place. There would be alcohol there. All sorts of kind of stuff would happen at the threshing floor. But Ruth takes this risk, and she follows Naomi's advice, and she goes to the threshing floor at night. All the guys are sleeping. They're sleeping by their grain. They're trying to guard it. And so Ruth kind of tiptoes past all the guys that are sleeping. She finds Boaz, and she lays down next to him, and I think somewhere in the middle of the night, Boaz realizes that there's someone sleeping by him. And at this point, he says this, Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth. She said, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. So essentially what Ruth is saying is this, Boaz, you know what? I can tell that there was chemistry between you and me in the field. I can tell that you liked what you saw. So if you like it, then you better put a ring on it. <laughs> see, see, Ruth is kind of channeling in the Queen Bee, and Boaz is her Jay-Z. And, and so she's just throwing it all out there, and she's saying, all right, let's make this happen. Let's make a lifelong commitment. Now, guys, I want you to picture this with me, okay? There is this girl in your bed. She was creeping in your crib at night, and now she's in your bed. She's looking good. What is your first response going to be? Are you going to be like Boaz and say this? The Lord bless you, he replied. <laughs> this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. If that poor girl is in your bed, guys, you can go, you are a woman of noble character. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. 
listen, in the ancient world, there's no regard to purity like, like we think. You know, they're, they're the same, you know, in many ways, it's very similar to how it is today. People kind of want whatever they want. Purity was not something that anyone valued. But why did Boaz value it? Why did Boaz automatically go into I'm a protector mode and actually protected Ruth and was able to kind of get her out of the threshing floor in, in, in a safe way? Because he was a kinsman redeemer and he understood God's bigger picture for love and marriage and sexuality. It all kind of, he understood how it all fit together. And he understood that his role was to be the protector. Now, I know in our society, it's kind of unpopular to say, you know, we need to wait until we're married to have sex. But that's what scripture says. In a lot of ways, sexuality is this fire. And a fire, when it's in the context of a fireplace or a fire pit, it, it's, it's great joy, brings great beauty. But in a, in a forest, it can, be a it can cause devastation. And in many ways, sexuality can have a devastating effect if it's not in the right context, if it's not within God's context that he has prescribed for us through his word and through scripture. You know, when I was in, in uh, middle school and high school, uh, I would hang out with these group of guys, and I would think, you know, these guys really understand how ladies work. And so I would like, I would want to be just like them. These were the guys that would collect the comic books, right? And so <laughs> maybe it didn't work like that in your high school, but that's okay. So, so I, you know, I would collect comic books, and maybe, and, and so as I was doing this, one of the things you realize when you do this for a long time is there are some comic books that are worth a lot, a lot of money. And one of the most valuable comic books is Action Comics number one, because it's the first comic with a superhero, which is Superman on it. It is worth $1,390,000. Not a bad a piece of chump change, right? So I want you to imagine with me, maybe you're new at Liquid, today's your first day at Liquid, you come to Liquid for the first time, and I say, hey, it's so great that you're here, uh, you guess what, you won the door prize, you get Action Comics number one, it's worth $13,000. And you're like, this is amazing, you know, $13,000. This is great, I'm going to come back to this church again. What do you think you'd do if you have something that's worth that much money? Most of us would get it like a protective case. We'd put it in, in, a, in a, an airproof safe. We would do our best to protect that thing so it could stay in mint condition, right? Now, what we wouldn't do is we wouldn't kind of take it and say, oh, well, this is nice, thanks. And we wouldn't kind of roll it up and, and shove it in our pocket, would we? we? We wouldn't, like, throw it on our coffee table and use it as a coaster. We wouldn't rip pieces from it and say, hey, I'll put this in my birdcage so, you know, it catches all the, the bird droppings, right? No, why? Because it's something that's valuable. It's worth a lot of money. And, and, and it's something that enhances our lives. And, and when, it is, when we treat the gift of sexuality in kind of a coarse way or it's just kind of a casual way, we're taking this gift that God has given us to draw us closer to one another, to give us a taste of heaven, and, and we, it ends up causing all sorts of damage in relationships, in our own lives as well. And that's why what God tells us in the book of Hebrews is so important. He says this, honor marriage. And say this with me, guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and a husband. God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. You see, there's just something powerful and beautiful about sexuality that can literally, it's transformative, but when it's not placed in the right sphere, it can cause all sorts of damage, which is why we're called to protect the purity. Now, some of you, I know some of you are thinking this. This, this would have been a great message, you know, to have when I was 12. Um, <laughs> it's kind of too late for me. I, I've kind of already you know, use that purity. It's kind of gone. And here's what I want to just kind of maybe throw this out there to you. Uh, you know, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to, 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 to talk down on you here because we all struggle with stuff. But here's the idea I want to throw this to you. If, if Boaz is this idea of the kinsman redeemer, you know who our redeemer is? It's Jesus. And you know one of the things that he buybacks, buys back for us? He buys back your purity. When you're in a relationship with Jesus, you know how he sees you? Pure, holy, 
justified, perfect in his sight because of what he has already done for us on the cross. So if you're here today and you're thinking, Nathan, I have got, uh, I have got so many mistakes. I have made all sorts of bad decisions. Let me just tell you this, is you can be pure again. Jesus can be your kinsman redeemer and, and just bring it all together. But in the meantime, I want to encourage you. If you're dating or you're single right now and, and you have that choice, I want to encourage you to protect the purity. Uh, one of the things that, you know, when Jack and I got married, uh, we were able to stay pure till the end, but, you know, it was not easy. It was hard. It was difficult. We made mistakes. But yet, God was good in his grace. And in the same way, I want to encourage you, if we could do it, you can do it. It doesn't matter if you're 17, you're a senior in high school, and everyone's doing whatever. It doesn't matter if you're in your mid or late 20s, and everyone's moving in together, and they're uh, getting married, or they're having kids. You can hang on till then. Or if you're single again, and you're kind of wondering, how do I figure out this new dating world? What is this Tinder thing? God will give you what you need. He'll give you the grace and the strength to resist. Because here's the thing, when you say yes to the things of God, you're saying yes to a hope and a future that's bigger and more expansive than you could ever, ever imagine, even if it's difficult. So let's review. I want to look at these four aspects one, one more time. Make the move from Moab. When you change your environment, you change your perspective. Observe the ethic. It's not about, it's not about charm, but it's about character. Character is what counts in the long run, which makes us remember that we need to look for loyalty. Not for someone that's going to be playing a relational hopscotch, but it's going to commit and stay with us when things get hard and when things are easy. And then finally, to protect the purity. God's given us this gift of sexuality and romance and marriage, and when we can protect those gifts, it gives us the ability to really see God's, uh, God's provision for our lives. Now, here's the question I want to have for us as we kind of bring our time to a close. What is God saying to you right now? If you're a Christ follower, what is God saying to you? Because for some of you in this room, you have been mesmerized by Moab. You love the anything goes mentality, but you're noticing it's starting to get hollow and it's starting to get old. So what God is calling you to do is to make the move from Moab, to choose a redeemed romance over a modern romance. For some of you, you're, you're in this place where you're with someone, you're kind of wondering, how do I know if they're the right person? They're so charming and they're, they're so beautiful. I want to encourage you. Start to peel back and observe the ethic, their character, what's going on there. Or maybe you've kind of been going from relationship to relationship. You're playing relationship hopscotch. And let me just ask you, have you considered just the beauty and the power that can happen in a relationship It's about companionship and loyalty, about, about commitment going the long way? Because there's a power that's in that. In fact, that's the melody that moved R&B to the altar of marriage. See, the way that the story of Ruth and Boaz ended is that Ruth said, Boaz said, yeah, Ruth, I'm in. He, he redeems the estate of Naomi's husband. It was a risk for him. He marries Ruth. And they have a child. And you would think at first, well, this is a great, nice, happy ending. That's, that's nice. That's good for them. It's like any kind of romantic comedy or Taylor Swift song, right? It all ends up in the, has a happy ending, a neat little bow. But what about me? Where's my romance? I've done everything God has wanted me to do. I'm still single. Where's, that, where's my partner? Where's that person in my life? Has God forgotten me? And I just want to remind you, the story of Ruth is a story of a woman that was forgotten. She was forgotten by society. 
She was forgotten by her culture. She was forgotten relationally. Everyone had written her off and forgotten about her, except for God. And God was using her meager book, this little book of the Old Testament, to weave a bigger story for us. See, when we look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, this is how it sums it all up. It says this, Ruth gave birth to a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, David was one of the greatest kings that the nation of Israel would ever have. He wrote the book of Psalms, and he was a worshiper. But more than that, Ruth was an ancestor of the ultimate king, our ultimate redeemer, Jesus. Did Ruth know when she was choosing integrity and loyalty and character and choosing to follow this God of Israel that she barely knew, that those decisions would have such an impact that literally it would bring the Savior of the universe here. I don't know where you're at in your journey. Maybe you're angry at God because you just don't understand what he's doing. But I just want to encourage you, your decisions today can determine the direction for generations to come tomorrow. When you choose integrity, when you choose faithfulness, when you choose to follow God in his ways, he will not, that will not go unnoticed. He sees it. He sees your sacrifice, and he says, I will reward you if you just keep going. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I just want to invite you to come right now. I know for some of us here, Lord, this is a, a painful area. We've been disappointed, we've been hurt, we've been frustrated. We've compromised, and we still haven't gotten to where we wanted. And so, Father, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would put your finger of healing on those who need it right now. I pray against any lies of the enemy that pull us towards despair, that pull us towards doubt, but I pray, Father, that those holes in our souls, you'd begin to mend them when we realize that a man can't fill them, a woman can't fill them, only you can, Jesus. So, Father, before you redeem romance, would you redeem us that we may go forth in the victory that you've won for us on the cross? Would you stand with me? We declare this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.